I wonder if you have ever thought in reading through the letter, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, that Paul's famous chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13, had somehow slipped in by mistake between two other chapters which were rather stern teachings on the use and misuse of spiritual gifts. Is chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians just an accidental insertion in the middle of Paul's discussion of spiritual gifts? Or is it an integral part of that discussion? Well, one of the things I want to achieve today is to show that it is indeed an integral part of our understanding of spiritual gifts and the way they are to be used. So we're going to look at the first part of chapter 13, but uh, before we do that, I'm going to turn us back to the point where we finished last week, that is to Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to use three headings as usual to help guide us through the thought process. First of all, purpose. Secondly, priority. And thirdly, peril. The purpose of spiritual gifts. That was my final point, in fact, last time, and there will be a little bit of repetition. And then priority, the priority of love. And finally, the peril of lost love. So let's consider that passage in Ephesians chapter 4. And it's a passage that begins in verse 8 of chapter 4. Now the first thing just to emphasize is that this passage is about spiritual gifts. And in verse 8, Paul quotes from Psalm 68, verse 18, and this is the quotation, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Looking forward to the ascension, not just to the death, not just to the resurrection, but to the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2,000 years before it happened, when he ascended on high. ESV version says he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. So it's talking about God's gifts to his church. And he goes on in verse 11, and God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Now, we looked at this, I just want to repeat it, that Paul's reasoning here is straight line. God equipped certain people to minister and teach and preach the Word of God. 
and then he gave those people to the church and I think we must think of a, a local church as we study this matter because although some of the things that are said here apply to what we might call the universal church the whole company of regenerate men women children throughout the ages nevertheless the universal church uh, can only be manifested in local assemblies of Christians so we can think of a local church and so the Lord gave those equipped to minister the Word of God to teach the scriptures to instruct the people in the ways of God he gave those people to local churches and there they taught and ministered the Word of God with a purpose and that purpose we're told here was to equip the ordinary Christians if I may use that expression to equip the generality of believers in order that those believers might conduct and carry out another ministry not now the ministry of the word but a ministry which perhaps might be better called a service the believers in general in the church are to be taught so as they are equipped to do the general work to serve a general purpose and what is that general purpose very clear it is to build up the church so all the believers who assemble together in a given church are charged with the responsibility to build up the church I think I've told this story before but uh, I'll tell it again because it's very relevant here a church asked Spurgeon the great preacher Spurgeon who ran a college Spurgeon's College to send them a young man to fill their empty pulpit they needed a pastor and a young man indeed went from Spurgeon's College to this church and a year later the church leaders wrote to Spurgeon and said your man the man you sent hasn't filled the church and Spurgeon wrote back and said I sent him to fill the pulpit it's your job to fill the church well I think that just drives home the point that all the believers in a given assembly of Christians whatever it's called are responsible for building the church and by the way if you are using a, a Bible version that you that talks of edifying then uh, please think of that word as meaning building up so we all both the teachers and preachers of the word and the members of the congregation if I can put it that way are all equally responsible for building up the church and that in particular you see and he's talking here about the gifts 
of the Spirit, the charismatic gift, that, that in particular is the reason God gives to a church these spiritual gifts. Some of those spiritual gifts are no longer needed, but many of them continue, especially the one I picked out last week, helps, helps. God has appointed some in the church as helps. That is a spiritual gift. To be a helper is a spiritual gift. So then, that is the purpose of spiritual gifts. It is to build up the church. But there is one thing that is left unsaid in this passage. Because surely there are a number of different ways in which a church can be built up. It can be built up, first of all, in knowledge and understanding of the things of God. But it can also be built up numerically in the numbers belonging to that assembly, that church. It can also be built up financially. It can gain and gather wealth to spend on the spreading of the gospel. It can gain in reputation. It can become a popular church. It can gain in the esteem of the community in which it exists by the performance of good works. Good works never save a person. We are saved by grace. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul is saying, chapter 2, saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God before prepared that we should walk in them. They were not saved by good works, but good works are a necessary product of salvation. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So you see, there are uh, many ways in which a church may be built up, and we're not told here which particular ways are most important. We are told one or two things. We're told, first of all, that the purpose of the teaching and instruction is to prevent us being swayed, moved, this way and that way, like the waves of the sea, unstably, by every wind of doctrine, and false doctrine at that. If we are well taught by those who preach and expound the scriptures, then we shall understand the scriptures, we shall understand what they teach, we shall know what is the faith once delivered to the saints, as Jude puts it in his short epistle. And we shall not be moved, we shall not be taken aside and led astray by every new doctrine or every new idea that comes along. We shall be very clear about what the scriptures teach. So that is one 
way in which a church needs to be built up and, and I must say just in passing but uh, importantly that many evangelical churches today are falling short in this responsibility to so establish their members in an understanding of biblical doctrine that those members are prone to be moved and swayed by every wind of doctrine, everything that comes along that looks new and exciting. Exposition of scripture in such a way as to instruct believers, the hearers, in the deep things of God are considered in many churches to be asking too much of the congregation. They couldn't understand it. One pastor, he said, we couldn't preach the way you preach because our congregation couldn't handle it. They wouldn't understand what you're talking about. Well, of course, the reply to that is, it's your job to teach them to handle it. But unfortunately, that was not the attitude. The idea was to keep people happy, to keep people comfortable, and not to test the bounds of their comfort zones. You can't do that if you're preaching Scripture faithfully, because Scripture does it, does test the boundaries of our comfort zones. Anyway, that was in passing. It's nevertheless a very important function of the charismata, especially these teaching ministry, to instruct Christians so that they shall not be easily moved away from the faith of the apostolic fathers and Christ himself, of course. But then what about numbers? We often say numbers are not important, but you know they are. Because if there is no growing up, if there is no development of a church in numbers, then it means people are not being saved, not being brought in. It means the church is not fulfilling its evangelistic charge, its evangelistic commission. So numbers are important. And also finance is important. It's surprising how much the New Testament has to say about money and giving to the cause of Christ. In 2 Corinthians particularly, Paul spends a lot of time talking about the responsibility of believers to give for the support of ministers, of those that minister the gospel, of missionaries, because otherwise those people are going to have to work to earn their living. And that means they will be able to devote much less time to the things of God. Giving is important. It's important for a church to be built up in its wealth, not for the sake of wealth, but for the sake of having sufficient resources to fund gospel activities. And then, no doubt, reputation is important, and also good works, as I've said, are important. So there are many different ways in which a church can be built up. But there is one way that I think is not always recognized. If you look at the 16th verse of Ephesians 4, it reads like this, talking about Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, every joint, every component of the body is using the human body as a picture of the church here, the whole body 
joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it will make the body grow so that it builds itself up in love, in love. A church needs to build itself up in love. In knowledge, yes, in numbers, yes, in wealth, yes, in reputation, yes, in the respect of the local community and the good works it does, yes, all of those things, but also it must be built up in love. Now, which of these is most important? Perhaps you don't have the resources to build up the church in all of these ways. Well, what about um, building up in numbers? Well, you go to the book of Revelation and the letters to the seven churches there in chapters 2 and 3, uh, you'll find there were small churches. What about finance? You'll find in those, among those chapters there were two churches that were poor and weak, and yet God blessed them. So some of these aspects of building up a church are perhaps not as important as others. Well, what about love? How important is that? And that sends us back to chapter 13. It is so important that the gifts of the Spirit become useless if there is no love. They become ineffective. They are incapable of building up the church and therefore they lose all purpose if they are not practiced and employed in love. Let's just read again those opening verses of chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have all prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. So I give away all that I have. And even, and he, he goes outside the boundaries of charismatic gifts, he talks here about becoming a martyr. If I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. You see what he's saying? He's saying that the charismatic gifts which are given for the express purpose of building up the church, and I hope I've proved that to you from Ephesians 4, if they are not practiced in love, they are not accompanied by love, then they are useless. They are ineffective. Paul puts it in the first person, I am nothing. But if the charismatic gift does nothing for the one who has that gift, then it certainly does nothing for the church. It does nothing for the glory of God. This is really a, well, I found it quite a shattering insight. And it brings us to our second point, the priority of love. You may have, I may have, an amazing range of gifts of the Spirit. They were very, very extensive in the church at Corinth. 
But if love is missing, they are useless. They achieve nothing. They bring no glory to God. They bring no growth to the church. The church can grow in numbers. It can grow in wealth. It can grow in many other ways. But unless it grows in love, then it's useless. It achieves absolutely nothing. And that, I, I think, we have to understand. For example, the charismatic gifts of the ability to teach, to pastor, and to educate a church in the things of God, that is a charismatic gift. But if the preacher preaches without a love for those to whom he preaches, he's wasting his time, according to the scriptures. You may have the most capable expositor of scripture standing before a huge congregation and teaching them true doctrine. But if he's not doing it with love for his congregation, he's achieving nothing. That's a very sobering thought, isn't it? You may have acquired large numbers in a church, and that may make the church very popular, very nice place to go. Got facilities for all age groups and functions uh, to keep people happy and to enjoy fellowship. But if those things are not done in love for one another, they are achieving nothing in the sight of God. They may be looking good in the sight of man, but in the sight of God they achieve nothing. The Lord Jesus Christ gave a commandment. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, in that you love one another. And if that love has not been built up in a church, if the members, congregation members, don't love one another, they enjoy one another's company, they might enjoy the society, but you know, love, if, if you look at the scriptures, you'll find out what love really is. It's not affection, it's not a superficial friendship. Love is something very profound and very demanding. If we don't love one another, if we have not built up a church in respect of its love, the love that should be the cement that holds it together, a love that should join one member to another, if that's not present, we're wasting our time. We may have great uh, wealth. We may do very many good deeds to other people. And that's surely pleasing to God. Well, it isn't unless we do it in love. If we do it to induce a feel-good sense within ourselves, if we do it to congratulate ourselves, if we do it because it gives us pleasure and do not do it in love for those upon whom we bestow our good works. They're no good, no use in the sight of God. And so not only is love a priority. It is the priority. Because if it's missing, if it's absent, it renders everything else useless. And so here we have a tremendous 
challenge. When the Lord Jesus Christ was asked, what is the first and great commandment, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And he added, he wasn't asked, but he added, and the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Now those are quotations from the Old Testament. The Lord Jesus didn't originate those statements. What he originated was this command, this new commandment, that we as believers should love one another as he loved us. And I don't need to elaborate on what it meant for Christ to love us, lay aside the glory of his eternal sonship, to leave the praise and worship of heaven and come into this sin-stained world, to take upon him the form of a man, a human being, of one of his own creations, and as a man to suffer rejection, indignity, and ultimately death in order that he might bring his enemies to a knowledge of his saving grace. That's love. That's love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's love. And so it is a challenge, isn't it? But whatever gifts we have, we must exercise them in love because only then will they have their desired effect of building up the church. Well then we move to my final point. You say, well, is it really as bad as that? Is it really as serious as that? Surely if we build up the church in some of these other ways and we overlook the need for love, then surely we've done something useful, something that God must be pleased with. Well, I'm going to turn you to those letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. And there you will find a letter to the Ephesians. I once heard a, a pastor in the pulpit announce, our reading is taken from the second letter to the Ephesians. And you scuffle of pages of Bibles, people looking for Ephesians 2. Well, here it is in the book of Revelation. Here in chapters 2 and 3, there are seven letters authored by the glorified Christ and dictated to the Apostle John in his old age. And here's what he writes to the church at Ephesus. Chapter 2 and verse 1. To the angel, and that word angel basically just means messenger. It doesn't necessarily refer to a supernatural being, and it doesn't, it cannot do so in this case, because John had to send a letter to it. An angel is simply a messenger, and in these letters the angels of the churches are not supernatural beings, they are people in those churches who were responsible for conveying apostolic teaching to the members of that church. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him 
who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Seven stars uh, were symbols of the angels or messengers and the seven lampstands were symbols of the seven churches. All these seven churches were in uh, a relatively small area uh, which today corresponds roughly to the western half of Turkey, Asia Minor as it was often called. So here is Christ who holds the messengers of the churches in his hands, represented by stars, and who walks among the seven golden lampstands, representing the seven churches. And here's what he has to say. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Well, if you wanted a testimonial, you couldn't ask for anything better, could you? Here is Christ praising a church, a church which has clearly built itself up in many different ways. But then he goes on. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from whence you have fallen, and repent, and do the works you did at first. If you do not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. In spite of all that they had done to build up the church, of all the good things they had done and all the good things they were doing, which are there in that great list of commendable actions and attitudes, Christ says, I've got something against you. You have lost your first love. And primarily, of course, that must be a love for Christ. But also, it would embrace a love for one another. You have become a loveless church. You have become a very active, a very successful, a very wealthy, admired church. But you've lost something. You've lost love. And what's the consequence of that? Not a wrap over the knuckles. Not a simple rebuke. The consequence is this. I'm going to remove your church. It's going to disappear. It's going to go away. It's going to stop. It's going to cease. It's going to close. Why? Because they had omitted to retain that first love. It had become a loveless church. Without recognising it, I'm sure, without appreciating what was happening. It was a church that was functioning like a well-oiled machine. It was doing great things. But without love, in God's sight, it wasn't worth existing. And he says, I'll, I'll take it away. I'll remove it. I'll close you down. Unless you 
repent. It does, of course, give them a warning and a chance to return to the love they once had. And so you see the consequences, the peril of losing this element of love in a church, this element of love in the use of the charismata, this element of love in the work of building up the church. If you have lost that, Christ says, I'm not interested in you. I don't want you. You're not the kind of church I want. So, repent. Return to the love you once had for Christ and for one another. We can move on before we finish. Just to remind ourselves of what love looks like. I'm not going to expound it, I'm just going to read the latter part of chapter 13 so that we can bear it in mind and it will be our subject next week. But then from verse 4 onwards, and I'm just going to read the rest of this chapter because we're going to analyse it, look at it more closely later and that will be, God willing, next week. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth or with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. 